Hello and greetings, and welcome to another edition of the New and Living Way, a Hebrews podcast. My name's Ethan. I'm very glad that you've joined us, and thank you for the gift of spending time as we continue to explore what God has to say to us in according to the Hebrews author. We pick up today in Hebrews chapter 6 and in verse 9. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not so unjust as to overlook your work and the love that you showed for his sake in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. In this way, the Hebrews author is bringing to a close this kind of aside that he has done. His very hard stop that he's made uh, that kind of began in chapter 5 and in verse 11. And we can see, as he says here, we speak in this way. Well, he's, what ways in which is he speaking? Well, he started in verse 11 of chapter 5, uh, having established this thesis of his about uh, Jesus as a high priest in the era of Melchizedek. Well, he wants to say more about it, but it's hard to explain because you have been, in the English standard, dull of hearing. That word dull there is the same word in verse six, chapter 6 and verse 12 that is sluggish. Uh, sluggish of hearing, that they should be teachers by this time, but they need someone to teach them again the basic principles of the oracles of God, that they need milk, not solid food, because they're unskilled in the word of righteousness as a child. Uh, solid food, though, is for the mature, those who have their powers of sermon trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Then he goes on to say, well, we're going to leave aside the elementary doctrines, uh, things he talks about, a foundation of repentance from dead works, faith toward God, instruction about washings, laying on of hands, resurrection of the dead, eternal judgment, to go on to maturity. And he's provided this really sober warning, that if there's somebody there who has been enlightened, has tasted the heavenly gift, has shared in the Spirit, has tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they then fall away, it's impossible to restore them to repentance. Uh, because they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. It's a very strong warning here that if, you, uh, if you're in this condition, and, and the whole idea we spoke last time was that this was a condition the Hebrews audience very much could be in, that kind of person who's been a Christian for a while, and, and it could be in that situation. If they, if they fall away then, there's no hope to bring them back. And that's why now he provides this comfort to bring his audience back. And it also helps us understand the rhetorical power of what he's doing. The, the, the author of Hebrews is very well attuned to uh, the rhetoric and the skill of rhetoric, how to speak. And so if we take it in a very flat, literalist, fundamentalist, absolutist way, uh, we're going to have this contradiction here because he said here, well, wait a second. You, you need milk, not solid food, but we're going to push on a maturity anyway. Uh, you seem unskilled in the word of righteousness, and yet we believe and are sure of better things for you. If we try to flatten it all out, it looks like it's a contradiction in terms. And it is because it is indeed a contradiction if we were to flatten it out. But again, it's a rhetorical device. He's challenging his audience. And uh, if you are familiar with preaching, you understand this. If the preacher goes say, you know, all of you just need to grow up a little bit. You know, um, that's an exhortation. Maybe there's some people there who do need to grow up a little bit, um, but maybe not everybody. And we understand that it's a challenge to the audience. 
Um, and, and so he's challenged his audience here in the beginning about needing to grow up. And he's really trying to generate them that, oh, yeah, well, I'm going to show you uh, type thing. I'm going to listen. I'm going to understand this that you're going to tell me about Melchizedek, which, of course, is exactly what the Hebrews author wants them to do anyway. Uh, so he's challenged them with that kind of bait at the beginning by, you know, really kind of insulting them. Like, you, you should be teachers, but you're not. You need to be retaught in the basics. Um, which for Christians who've been around a while, you know, sounds pretty rough. And then he's got this dire warning for them that if you turn aside now, there's no hope. You can't be restored to repentance, which would lead to some fear, some some concern. Is that me? You know, am I going to be lost forever? And that's why he now says, "But we are convinced of better things, things belonging to salvation." He is not actually suggesting that they are unsaved. And this brings up a very important point about how we read the Bible and how we read texts. Um, there's been a lot of bad interpretive methodology that's gone on for years uh, in the, for various reasons. I think a lot of it just basically in terms of ignorance and simplicity. And one of the worst ones is that all things in the Bible are decontextualized and proof-texted. And we don't take seriously the specific context in which things are written. And so it's very easy to take passages like we're seeing in Hebrews and to associate them very much like some other passages written to people who uh, may not have believed in Christ, may have been Jewish and not believed in Christ, or pagans who denied Christ, or about false teachers coming in and, and, and their influence and things of that nature. We kind of flatten out the audience to, to everything is about everybody. And that's a very dangerous thing to do because we don't really pick up on things and we, we end up making things seem worse sometimes than they really are or better than they really are. And here it's a worse situation. Because a lot of times people will come to Hebrews and kind of assume, well, these are people going to fall away into Judaism. Well, they're not the Galatians. The Galatian Christians were very much in danger of falling, practice, falling to Jewish practices. And so Paul has to write to them as such. But the Hebrews author is not suggesting that they have sinned. And that's something important to keep in mind. He has not suggested they have sinned. He is concerned that they are growing weary and about to fall into very serious sin. But he is convinced that they are faithful. He is convinced they are Christians. He is convinced that God is not going to overlook the work that they have shown, the love that they have shown in serving the saints, and the fact that they are continuing to serve the saints. These are Christians who have been Christians for a while. And the Hebrews author is writing to encourage them and exhort them to keep going. And so, in, ironically, if we're going to see ourselves in the text, so to speak, as Christians... A lot of us should see us ourselves more as the audience to the Hebrews writer than, than we would to many other parts of the Bible because we are more like them than we would care to admit because we have, like these people, many of us, heard the word over and over and over again. We have striven and had that passion, that zeal that we started with, but it may be flagging. We may be growing weary because of the distress of the hour, the difficulties we've, incurred, we've encountered, uh, persecution and pressure to kind of shave off some of the more awkward or difficult parts of the faith to, com to compromise the society or just to completely abandon the faith to be able to find greater acceptance in society. And so... Uh, 
it's a very different way you speak to people in that context than in other contexts. And we hear things differently in that context. Where just because the exhortation is given doesn't mean that's where they are right now. They're not falling away yet. That's what the Hebrews author is concerned about. And those of us who are active in preaching especially can, can appreciate what the Hebrews author is doing because he is seeing us, the danger of the congregation. He has read the room. He has seen the danger of the people to whom he is speaking. That danger is uh, that they, they're growing weird, that they've lost sight of the power of those fundamentals and what those fundamentals are to mean. They've lost sight of what this is all about, and they're, they're very much seeing the difficulties all around them on the horizontal level, and they're missing out again on that, the power of that vertical level. It's not like there's nothing good about them. They are they believe in Christ. They here are doing good things for one another. They're showing love to one another. They have this work. They're currently in a saved situation. They are in relationship with God in Christ. And so what is he looking for? He's looking for them, each one of them, to show that same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, that they would not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and inherit patience inherit the promises. He wants them to understand that they can't be done yet. He's concerned that they're done, that they've, they've put in all this work and that they aren't going to make it to the end, that they're quitting now. Um, you go to Jesus' parable of the virgins. And the parable of the virgins is a uniquely important parable in light of what's going on here. Because notice, all the virgins came with oil. It's just that five of them brought extra oil. And the issue is, if the bridegroom had come when he was expected, all ten virgins would go in. That's a part of that story that's not often emphasized, because people try to want to make the the five virgins who are foolish to be more sinful than they are. That's not the point of that parable. The point of the parable is not that the, the bridegroom is coming. The point of that parable is the bridegroom might well be delayed. And by delayed, not in the sight of God, but in the sight of man. That he's it's taking longer than we thought everything is taking longer than we thought we are being called upon to show more patience than we expected and it's all in the preparation that the five virgins who were prepared knew that there was at least a possibility the bridegroom would be delayed they had the extra they needed to make it through there were five who just didn't have that same level of expectation preparation and therefore the time came where they ran out they ran out and they needed to get more in order to come back in. And by the time they came back in, the door was shut. And so the danger is here. And it really, again, coalesces well with what the Hebrews author has already been saying and also forecasts what he will be saying. It goes well with what he's already said because he's already given in the earlier exhortations these warnings that he's led up to. And we tried to point that out last time, right? That there's that warning in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, that kind of is leading us uh, to what we see in chapter 3 and 4, particularly about that explication of Psalm 95 and that wilderness generation. And now, of course, that if you turn away, uh, you're, you're going to not be able to be restored to repentance. That you're going to end up like Israel in the wilderness. And you can certainly see that here. You can hear that resonance that uh, you're in the wilderness. The promised land is there, but it's going to take you longer to get there than you expected. 
And if you fall prey to that despair to the point of acting like you're not going to make it, and therefore you just want to give up and you're going to be rebellious, you're going to fall dead in the wilderness. You will not obtain the promise. Uh, remember in chapter 4, that exhortation to be, give diligence so that you will enter into that rest. Uh, if you need to give diligence to enter that rest, it means you have not yet entered that rest. And you need to persevere so that you can enter that rest. And that's what the Hebrews author is at. His audience is at that very, very dangerous point in faith. Uh, there's a reason why there's the, 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 the saying that the darkest hour is always before the dawn. Uh, the, the biggest moment of danger of starvation is right before the harvest. Because what, what does that mean? Well, it means all of what you've had before has uh, been running dry. And all the light that existed the day before is gone, and the dawn hasn't yet come, so it's the darkest, it's the most dire at that hour before the dawn. It, it means that when you've gone and done 70-80% of the journey, all of those resources that got you to where you are might be expended. And especially if you can't see that it's not that much left, uh, it's very easy to be tempted to just give up. Or even if you can see that, you know, personally, I always find around the 60% mark of any task is always the most challenging because I've used up all of the initiative energy to get there. And boy, you know, you're over half, but 40% is still a lot. And so it's easy to despair that you're ever going to reach the goal. And that's where the Hebrews author is trying to goose his audience here. He's trying to exhort his audience to say, you've got to keep going. You've got something greater. You've got something better, but you've got to hold firm to it. And he's putting a lot of emphasis here on this high priest of Melchizedek, which is likely a new concept. It does not mean that it's coming out of nowhere. It has its antecedent in Psalm 110, but it's not something that you see highlighted in what Jesus has taught, what Peter has taught, what Paul has taught. Uh, it's something that we see primarily here from the Hebrews author. And he's doing that to really try to encourage these Christians to see that Jesus can sympathize and identify with them and that they have direct access to God that they need to, to leverage in a bold way. And they need to hold fast to that confession with the full assurance of hope because God has been faithful and has done all that is necessary. And that's the demonstration of what he's done in Jesus as the priest in the Earl Melchizedek. To what end? To not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and impatience inherit the promises. If you are aware of what goes on in the letter of the Hebrews, you think about the examples of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises, the mind immediately goes to chapter 11. And the hall of faith. You know, by faith, uh, we'll talk about uh, Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and the judges. And we'll have all kinds of fun things to talk about when we get there. But we see that kind of forecasting here, don't we? Uh, there's a reason why we're going to talk about all of these. Because they had endure a lot. And this is a really important and poignant exhortation because if there's one consistent theme throughout Scripture is that God is faithful to His promise, but the working out of God's promise happens in His good time, and that certainly takes a lot longer than we humans are really ready for. Um, you think about the promise of Abraham that his children would inherit the land on which he lived, and yet that would take over 400 years. You see the promise uh, to David about the kingship. 
and that there would always be a king on the throne. Well, you have the Davidic lineage that goes until 586, and then it's going to take over uh, 500 years, almost 600 years, uh, in order to see the fulfillment of all of the promises about that kingship. And we can see the impatience of Israel in Psalm 88, Psalm 89, about such things. And we see that the Psalter is wise in Psalm 90, in providing kind of an answer, even though what is written in Psalm 90 came long before Psalm 88 and 89 where Moses meditates on how our, we live 70, maybe 80 years at the most. Uh, but with God, one day is as a thousand years, a thousand years as one day. And of course, that will become the anchor of what Peter has to say in Second Peter chapter 3 about how you know the mockers will come saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the beginning of the creation, everything continues as it has now. And the warning about the flood and the fact that when the Lord returns, it will be quick. And it's been 2,000 years. And so if that kind of mockery was happening in the days of Second Peter, how much more so, so many years later? And yet, it could be as two days to God. And we see this in how, in our own lives on a much smaller scale, where we want things to work out. And we're, we're just done. We, our patience has been exhausted. We have done well in the faith. We have grown in the faith. Uh, we are now uh, serving well, but we're losing that zeal. We're losing that passion. We're about to give up because we just don't have it any longer. And that's when that exhortation of you need to continue to persevere in patience and the full assurance of hope until the end. The end is not here. The end is not yet. It is coming, but it is not here. And the Hebrews author is now leveraging and marshalling all that he can marshal. The example of what God accomplished in Jesus, the example of the witnesses of faith, all to exhort them to continue in patience to the end. And that's a message that we need to hear too. Because we're in that same condition where we want it to, the end to come in so many ways. We want to share in the glory and the life and the resurrection. We want to see the sin-sick world end where a lot of times things aren't getting better. And we're seeing all kinds of ugly things. And it would just be great if the Lord came to end it all. And we need to pray for that. Maranatha, our Lord come, our Lord return. But at the same time, we need to have that patience to make it to the end, whenever that end will be. We'll pick up again in, in verses 13 through 20 next time in this kind of interesting bridge, so to speak, between uh, uh, this uh, this hard stop and what he will continue to say. And it's of great importance. We look forward to digging into that next time. And may the Lord bless and keep you until we're able to meet then.